somebody uh, left me a note and uh, wanted me to talk about remorse. And uh, I'll talk more about this. I'll talk about this tomorrow, because tomorrow I want to talk about ethics. <laughs> then just to come back slightly to the, the question, the note about uh, the, the, the sounds when eating. And uh, just also to point out that uh, listening is a tool of awareness and it's very useful. But I would say also we have to be, again, the middle way. And that if somebody, for whatever reason, is too sensitive to noise and it is aggravating, then I would say sometimes it's better actually not then to focus on sounds, but then to focus then on another sense, like seeing something or the taste of the food or something of that nature. So I think we have to be careful of thinking, oh, if uh, there is a situation, uh, then I must be totally aware of it. I think often we also we have to use wisdom. And then sometimes we can move the focus away and then it gives more space and then we can creatively engage later on in a different way. But what i like to look at tonight, it's uh, feelings uh, and again a little grasping and then looking a little at habits. Uh, connection with uh, emotional habit. And so yesterday I was talking about grasping in terms of contact, but also in a way we have grasping in terms of contact upon contact there is a feeling, and generally in a way we grasp at this feeling. So I would say contact and feeling go very much together. I mean, it's very hard to separate one from the other. So in a way, uh, the way the Buddha presented is that there is, and I'll talk more about tomorrow in terms of the awareness, one can be aware of the feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And what is interesting if we do that is that then we start to see there is contact, a feeling tone arises, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and then according to that, we will grasp in different ways. If we come in contact and there is a pleasant feeling tone which arises, then generally we grasp at it. Generally we want to continue. We want it to continue. We want it to repeat itself. What is interesting is when you have a, a nice weekend, you spend a nice weekend with friends, and it's such a nice time. And when they leave, what do you say? Let's do this again. And you are basically saying, let's, do, let's have the same condition because then we'll, we'll have the same pleasant experience. But my experience is that generally it doesn't work that way. Sometimes the conditions are the same and you won't have the same pleasant experience or a different one. And so to see generally there is this quick, let's do it again. Let's repeat this. We want it to continue. Then with the unpleasant feeling tone, straight away, it's painful, it's unpleasant, we don't want it. So we reject it, generally very immediately. And in a way, we throw that very quickly. Is, I cannot stand it. We have a tendency very much to exaggerate, which then stop us in a way to creatively engage with how as unpleasantness a reason, how can I be with it in a way, because sometimes 
we have to just be with it. Sometimes we can transform it. Sometimes we can avoid it. I mean, there are, again, creative engagement can manifest in different ways. And uh, there was this uh, story of a friend. He was uh, practicing meditation many years ago when he was younger, and he was sent. This was long ago in the 60s. He was sent to Korea by his teacher to do a three-month retreat there where you sit 10 hours a day and you get up at 3 in the morning, you go to bed at 9 or 10, and you, know, you sit for 50 minutes and you walk just for 10 minutes and really hard work. But he was sent there, as in a way, he was, you know, his teacher told him, you are a Westerner, you are the first Westerner who go and meditate there. You really must, you know, give a good impression. And so after the talk from his teacher, he had the feeling that he was like a kind of Olympic representative, <laughs> you know, of the Western meditator. And so he really had to do it well. He really was very important. So he goes there and... I mean, it's tough, you know, these 10 hours a day, and he never done that, you know, and he kind of tries and tries, and he kind of just about can make it. But he feels it's just, you know, it's tough. And then he hears that soon they're going to do a week of non-sleep. This is a special week which is done in December. And then they won't sleep at all, and they'll meditate the whole time. And he thought, I mean, I do 10 hours and I can barely make it. I mean, I can never, never. It just seemed impossible to him that he could do it. So he goes to the teacher and uh, he said to the teacher, I don't think I can do this. And the teacher actually had a very, what I would call a very, uh, uh, although he was a Zen teacher, a very awareness practice type of answer. And the teacher said, do it just a breath at a time. Just don't look at the next breath. Don't look at the next day. Just each at a time. Don't, basically, he was saying, don't proliferate. Don't project. Just when it happens, try it out and be present to each moment and to the next moment and see if you can do the next one and the next one. And he did it. And it was fine. And actually, the experience of it was possible when the abstraction of it had seemed so impossible. And I think often that's what we do with unpleasant experience. Is that by, in a way, proliferating, exaggerating, generalizing, futuring with them, then we make it too much. When actually, with our creative potential, we can be. We can learn to be and to kind of find a way to be with what is unpleasant, what is difficult. So in a way, with the pleasant, I think what is important, the Buddha is not saying, you know, don't experience pleasantness. But it's more when it's pleasant, be aware of it. Appreciate it, but appreciate it knowing it's not going to last forever. And you cannot necessarily repeat it in the same way. And with the unpleasant, it's kind of, in a way, being aware of it as it is and not as you imagine it to be and see how can you be with this? How can you do something about it? But then there is another feeling tone, which is interesting. And this is a 
what is called the neither pleasant nor unpleasant, and we could call it the neutral feeling too. And to try to become aware of neutral feeling too. But what is interesting with us is generally we associate neutral feeling tone with boredom. And this is why when we sit in meditation on retreat, because nothing is happening, most of the time what we experience is a neutral feeling tone. And sometimes people come and say, this is boring. But personally I would say, you can see it that way. But actually, what is happening? Nothing. And then if you turn it around, actually you could just rest. I mean, nothing is happening, nothing unpleasant, but nothing painful is happening. At the same time, this is already something. And in a way, when nothing happened, we could just rest. We are so busy wanting excitement. You know, if things are not exciting, I am not living. But even if nothing is happening, one thing is going on, is that you are alive, you are breathing. There is potential in that moment. And what is interesting about this three-feeling tone is that in the Majjhimanikaya 44, the Buddha says something very interesting. He says that pleasant feelings are pleasant due to their presence. So that it's pleasant because there is pleasant feeling. But actually, pleasant feelings are unpleasant due to change. So when something is pleasant, we experience pleasantness. But when the pleasant stops, then we might experience pain. And it's the same with painful feeling. Painful feelings are experienced as painful when they are present. But when they change, they experience as pleasant. This is what is interesting. When pain stops, the relief. I don't know if you, I mean, at one time I had these bouts of pain. And when finally I managed to find the way to, to resolve that, for six months, I was so aware that I did not have that pain. And every time it was such a pleasant sensation, just, ah, it's not there. Now I don't experience it that way. Now it's just normal that it's not there. But I think this is what the Buddha is pointing out, that when the painful feeling is gone, then actually nearly straight away it turned into pleasant. And this actually has been found out uh, recently through an experience they did with people who were ill with a certain illness and some examination, that actually people preferred a more intense pain which was short than a, a, a less pain which was longer because the researchers thought it would be the opposite and actually not. Because when the intense pain stops, it's such a relief. And what you remember is a relief, more than the intense pain. Then what is interesting, the Buddha continues. Neutral is pleasant when there is knowledge of it, but painful when there is no knowledge of it. And I think this is also interesting in terms of the meditation experience. He's saying, in a way... 
if we're conscious of the neutral feeling, if we're conscious of what is a neutral feeling, actually a neutral feeling is a very peaceful feeling, is a relatively equanimous feeling, and we could actually enjoy it if we were aware of its quality. But if we're not aware of this quality, we have this very strong association. It's neutral, nothing is happening, it's boring, yuck. And so, again, you have the same feeling, but according to the way you are with it, you might experience it very differently. And then I wanted to talk about habits because I think in terms of um, awakening, let's say in terms of the awakening project, to me what is interesting in terms of that is to see, you know, I, I, I have met different people, I have met different great teachers, I have lots of friends who have meditated, who had great experiences. But what I see is that you might have great experiences, but you still seem to have some negative habits left to work on. And that's what I became more and more interested in habits, to see that you know, we could cultivate meditation, develop concentration and wisdom, and concentration and inquiry, wisdom and compassion. And it's, a, in a way, a long-term project. Because, yes, we can develop deep meditative state, but this is a complex organism. And over time, we have built up habits. And meditation is not going to eradicate habits. I think often that's what we hope to do. That, you know, if I get the right meditation formula, then my habit will be eradicated and I will be such a nice person then. But I think to me more the meditation is a way to know our habits, not to judge them, to recognize them, to explore them, and actually through the meditation process, bring them back to their function, because they all have a function. They started as a function. But the way we experience them is more like groove. It's like, like our habit is like we, we feel we can't stop ourselves. We just, we, we, it's very automatic. We kind of go, we think a certain way, we feel a certain way, we have certain sensation. It's very automatic. It's kind of like we have this groove in our being. And so we have mental groove, emotional groove, physical groove. And I think it's also important to see that a lot of this groove, a lot of this pattern, this habit, have developed a survival mechanism in our childhood. And throughout our life. I mean, we are a being who wants to survive. And so we find different mechanisms to survive. And I think a lot of the pattern, in a way, at some point, had that mechanism. But then, over time, we have to see. Again, that's a mistake we make. We fix. I did this. It helped me. It will help me forever after. I think, again, we kind of forget that it was useful at a certain point, And now we don't need to do it in that way. And so in a way to look at habits and to see are they beneficial or not? Are they causing suffering to myself and other or not? And to me over time, what I have seen in terms of habits, and I think this is important in terms of uh, the meditation we develop here, 
is to notice that there are three levels to our habits. And that with each level, we can, the meditation will help us in different ways. And I think this is very important to see. And I would say there is an intense level, the habitual level, and the light level. And so intense. Intense is when, very important to see that intense happen because of recent conditions. You don't feel always intensely. But when you feel intensely, it's so intense, you think you always feel like this. This is in a way the problem with that. Something happened which provoked this intense mental, emotional, physical suffering, and then you generalize. It is always like this. It will never change. And then it makes it very difficult to deal with the situation. Because again, it's too big. Instead of, yes, it is painful, but because something recently happened. But it can be something uh, joyful. I mean, I, I had a, this experience teaching once. And um, after two days, one of, one of the person wanted to see me, the meditator. And she said to me, I am going to go. And I said, oh, what is the matter? And she said, well, three days before I started the retreat, I fell in love. And so I sit in meditation and I just think about that fellow non-stop. And I think instead of thinking about him, I would rather be with him. Her choice. But it was interesting. There was a, you know, it just, something had happened just before she came and it was going round and round and round. So there is this very obsessive. And so in a way, very obsessive feeling. And this can be done also with something painful. If something painful happened before you come, it will be again the same. Round and round. Very obsessive. Then you have the habitual. The habitual level is like what with one way to see it is that it's repetitive. And one way you can notice it, for example, when you sit in meditation. You sit in meditation and notice. What is it you think about? Possibly you are not every second having the most original idea you have never had before. But very likely, you are planning, or you are daydreaming, or you are ruminating, judging, things that you also do in daily life. And there is this kind of tendency we have, like planning. You know, you might sit in meditation, start with the breath or the sensation of the sun, and then you're planning your holiday. You're planning your retirement, and then you go round and round and round. Very repetitive. And if you see, you don't go very far. It's kind of, you know, 10, 20. Generally, I suggest five times. Five times any planning, and then you move to the next one. And then there is a light manifestation. Light. And it's just being human. We all plan. We all fantasize, we all ruminate, but it's light. And this is the easiest level to deal with the habit. And that's why I think it's very important to see that when we meditate, because not much is happening, the habit will be at the light level. And then at the light level, it's easy to see it. It's easy to see it, how it manifests. And it's easy to start to play with it, to creatively engage with it.
So now I want to look at um, some emotional habits uh, we might have. And again, to see that meditation is not about, again, eradicating thought or feeling or sensation. Feelings are part of just being human. It's one capacity, one ability, one function we have to have feelings. We feel sad, we feel joyful, we feel happy. We have all kinds of feelings. But then, what is interesting is that this feeling becomes, I would say, habituated. And it becomes, over time, what I would call a negative habituation, and what I would call becomes disturbing emotion. And so something happens, and oh, we react in a certain way. And what is interesting is that in meditation, when nothing generally happens, we become a little aware of what I would call this emotional groove. You sit here, nobody is bothering you, and then you might feel fear, or you might feel anger, or you might feel sadness, or you might feel joy, or you might feel excitement. I mean, one can feel all kinds of feelings. And so in a way, in the, through the meditation, to become more aware of this substratum, before it goes into the disturbing emotion where you have a huge story and then past and futuring comes in. But just to be aware, how does it feel? Not in the idea I have of it, but what is the experience within myself? And then this with the meditation helps us to be with that, those feelings differently. And then it, we're more aware of the sensation instead of the abstraction and instead of the story. And we kind of start to feel more spacious around it. So instead of being so identified with our feeling, we can have them. We can explore them. We can, in a way, creatively engage with them. So the two I want to look a little at today because I can't look at all of them. I thought I would look at fear. And then at anger, if I have the time. Fear. Uh, most of us, at some point, experience fear. It's a natural survival mechanism. We need fear in a way to exist. It's kind of just, it will help us to, to be more careful with this body and mind and heart. So basically, it's to help us to be more careful. And also, in terms of the body-mind complex, it's this physiologically, this fight or flight mechanism, which makes us act. But then if we overburden the physiological mechanism, then we become anxious and we are fearful all the time, even though there is nothing to be afraid of. I mean, if somebody is in front of you threateningly pointing a gun at you, I would say, yes, this is, you have a very good reason to be afraid. But if you look at our fear, a lot of our fear are in the future. They're not now. This is what is interesting. When there is a feeling of fear, to see what is it I am afraid of? Is there something frightening now? And if we look at the three levels, intense, something happened, and you are in an intense fear, I had that experience. And uh, many years ago, I was in a certain situation, and then uh, a guy suddenly started to hit me. And I was like, 
And what was interesting is that I experienced in that moment the two things, the, the kind of the, the flight and the paralysis. Because fear can really paralyze us. And I felt like, ah, oh, I don't know what to do. My next thing was maybe I should jump out of the window, but we were on the second floor. I thought this could be maybe more dangerous than what he was doing. And then the third one, the third reaction was creative, shouting so somebody could come and help me, which happened, and then the guy stopped, and it was not so bad, but still, it was not pleasant. But So that's what happened when we in a fearful state. But often, there is nothing going on. And we make ourselves go in this fearful state. And that's why I think it's very important to be aware at the kind of the light level. Do I have a tendency to be afraid? And to really start to see, is there something really frightening or not? Because if we, in a way, bring it to this intense level, it will really kind of severely stop our creative potential. Then there is a fear as a habit. It is a habit that we have. And this is something I very much experience when I go to South Africa. Because there, if you are with certain people, they're very afraid. And what is interesting is fear is contagious. And in South Africa, if I am with somebody who is afraid, I am afraid too. Everything, everything becomes dangerous. I find it fascinating to see that. And I kind of, I become like this too. And nothing has ever happened to us in South Africa. And we've been there many times to teach meditation. But it's so contagious fear. And to me, this is also to ask myself, do I want to be afraid and then be contagious to other people? That's what I've really learned there. And then if I am with somebody who is not afraid, I don't feel afraid in the same situation. And so in a way to see how do I feed, this is to me what is interesting with habit. How do I feed the habit? And back to what is going on now? Is there something to be afraid or not? And then there is a light manifestation. And this is interesting to, to look at in terms of when you're just a little, little, little anxious, kind of a little unsettled, and to kind of just how does it feel in the body? What is going on in the mind? And one way to experience this is when, if you're in a car, and you, ne- you nearly had an accident. So you may be at a crossroad, you arrived a little fast, another car was coming, and you just managed to avoid it. So you avoided it, nothing happened. And how do you feel? <gasps> Your heart goes, <gasps> And what is interesting is that, yes, you can just be aware of that, that you are afraid because something, you nearly had an accident and something really nearly was bad. But if you think, oh, that was so bad and I, oh, we nearly died. Oh. I mean, if, I, if it had happened and then you go into the whole thing again, you increase it, you increase it, and you can actually put yourself in really intense fear when nothing has happened. I find it interesting, these moments, where we see we, can, we have the choice, in a way, to just experience the fear and then let it be, because it arose, because it happened, and then the thing is not happening anymore, and so it's going to go down. And what do we do? 
you know, we to heighten it to make it continue. And so, to me, this is what, in a way, the meditation is helping us to do in terms of the fear, is to develop stability and openness. But really, to, when we sit, I know, you sit in meditation and some of you find it a little difficult and nothing is going on and it's boring and it's hard to do and I can't focus. <laughs> but, you know, when you sit in meditation, when you walk in meditation, you are really cultivating what I would call the whole being, stability, a kind of a core of confidence within yourself, which is not abstract. It's something in your whole body and mind that you cultivate that actually you will be able to take with you in your daily life. And I know for myself, when something is difficult, that's generally where I go. I go to this core within myself. And I think, okay, let's see what happens. That's why I, I, I know that, you know, it could be difficult, it could be tricky, but I generally think, okay, let's go from here instead of from, oh, but what if they say this and can I really do this? Oh, and what, what about that? And so in a way, to see that meditation, in a way, can really help us there. And to re- really see, to me, about the fear as a habit is to really look into the story of our mind. I mean, to know the bodily sensation, but also to look the story in the mind and to see that a lot of the time, fear is in the future. Really, the the fear you have is not now. It's in the future. It's about, what if? And to to see that possibly this might happen, but you don't know for sure. We never know for sure what is going to happen. And the thing we fear is that in abstract, your potential cannot be activated. And a lot of the time, when the thing you fear happens, actually you are able to deal with it adequately because in the experience, your creative potential can be accessed. And I saw this um, funny, funny film one night on TV. And it's funny how the whole film, I mean, it was interesting, but I mean, it's kind of a funny film. But there is one sentence in the film, and actually the, the, the producer is interested in new age things. And the story is about young people and dinosaurs and things. Dinotopia. And at one moment, but I would recommend it just for this sentence. And at one moment, you have this young guy We're supposed to jump a chasm, and he's very afraid, and he can't do it. Everybody else does it, and he can't do it. And so the instructor says, fear is in the future. Jump now. He doesn't do it, but he does it later on. (laughs) But I think, in a way, to to remind yourself of that, I think it can be sometimes useful. Then anger. Anger... I think not everybody, but most people experience anger in some, in some ways. To see that, again, it's a function of the human being. I think it's kind of, it's energetic. It's an energy which sees something. And, you know, often it's fiery. It agitates. It frustrates us. It's kind of like, you know, we, we have this, it's boiling. I think it's kind of a different, fear is a different sensation. Kind of anger is 
kind of a very firing. And I just finished a book recently, very interesting, about how to deal with anger from a meditative point of view by a psychiatrist called Ron Liefer, an American, called Vine uh, Vinegar into Honey. And it's very interesting, very small book, but it looks into anger and how to work with it and everything. But his main idea, which I think is quite interesting, is about why are we angry? And he said, if we look with awareness, most of the time when we are angry is because we, are, we want something we are not getting and we are getting something we don't want. And he said, generally, if you feel angry, ask you, ask you, what is it I am not getting? What is it I am getting I don't want? Quite interesting kind of way to look at it. So when you are angry, but, and it's an intense one, something happens, somebody said something, you're intensely angry. You're boiling. And generally, you explode. I mean, this is a thing with fear paralyzes us, but generally anger kind of makes us act. It's very fiery. And at that level, it's very dangerous because it can make us quite sometimes violent, aggressive, etc. But one thing which is interesting when you have that experience is that generally you lose common sense. Your, your wisdom goes. I mean, I don't get uh, so angry anymore at all like I used to do in my youth. But some years ago, I was so frustrated, so frustrated, by another Buddhist teacher, that finally I exploded. I exploded. I, I lost it. And it only lasted five minutes. And afterward, what I could see so clearly, because I had not had it for so long, is that my, my, uh, I, I could not make sense. My mind was such turmoil that I could not make sense. And so in a way, to see that when we caught in this intense anger, it's very hard to deal with it because we generally don't make sense. Wisdom really goes. Our mind is just all over the place. Then that's why I think it's better to be work with anger when it's habitual because it's a little less hot. And then you can see what is interesting with anger then is this irritation groove. Kind of, anything irritates you. And again, why are you irritated? Generally because things don't go according to plan, you feel contradicted, you feel there is an obstacle. So you feel kind of, and you're kind of irritated. I mean, one good place to experience it is in the supermarket queue. This is an excellent place, you know. You're a nice, friendly fellow, aren't you? And we kind of, you know, we are Buddhist meditator, we try to be equanimous, and then I put you in a supermarket queue, and of course you choose the wrong one, which things don't move, people chatting, you know, a check, lots of that. And what is interesting as a meditator, because to me, one of the places where I practice in the supermarket queue, I kind of stand and I just meditate. But what I see is that if I have no appointment, if I have no deadline, I don't tell myself, I go to the supermarket and then I do this. If I don't do that, I just go to the supermarket, then I can be in that queue forever. I just stand there, I meditate, loving kindness to everybody. <laughs> but what is interesting is if 
you have an appointment or you want to do something or you want to go somewhere. So that actually, you see, because generally we're ahead of ourselves. So we're generally like this. And I think this is why often in this world, modern world which goes fast, we're, always like, we're often like this. And because things don't go according to that speed, then often we feel like that. And then we irritate it, you know. The postman is not going faster. And, they, and, and then it's very hard. It's, it's harder to just, oh, yes, you know, breathe. May all beings be happy, the cashiers especially. Because in a way there is that energy, that speeding energy. And I think this is something to be aware, in order to look at the condition in which the anger arises. Is that, that movement, that being ahead, which is thwarted in a way. And then there is when uh, the light, the light feeling of slight irritation. It's interesting. And often what is important to see is, you know, when we feel cranky, I mean, nobody has done anything to us. And then we think, there must be somebody somewhere. Why I feel cranky? Because, of course, it's not our fault. Somebody else around the corner. Well, actually, it's because we're tired. And I think it's, again, to look. When we see these habits, we have to see they're not like this all the time. We have to see there are conditions that give rise to them. And I think that's why the meditation can be very interesting to look at what is a trigger to the habit, to the light level, to the habitual, to the intense. What are the contributing factors and what is the sensation that I experience when it happens? And so in a way to explore, to me the meditation is this exploration but in a way, I would say most of the time when you sit here on a retreat, these things don't happen. You're not in the queue in the supermarket. You're not in the car having a near accident or whatever. But you are actually cultivating the creative awareness so that when in your daily life this happens, then you can activate it. This is what actually we are developing here. We are developing the power of awareness. So in a way, we are developing this awareness of instead of being caught in the story, I am afraid because generally, I am afraid because of the story. I am angry because of the story. But I would say, you, of course, you're angry because of the condition, but you are angry because you have a certain feeling within yourself and because you are reacting to that feeling in a certain way. And so in a way, to. I would nearly say, with the habit, what we do is to bring them back to their function. Instead of them being so habitual and so automatic, then actually we bring them back more to their function and to when is it useful to be angry. And sometimes you have to be angry. I remember with my niece, I uh, sometimes take care of my niece. And last year, she was having a crisis Endless crisis of boredom. She was like, I am bored. It was like, you know, I had to do something about it. But whatever I suggested, no good, no good, no good. I am bored. So she does that one time, and then a friend kind of changes. She does it another time. It's just me and her, and she has this crisis of boredom, and she 
shouts and she cries and everything. And finally, I decide, can't do this. Ah, it won't do. So I tell her, I can't, you can't do this. I'm not taking this. I'm taking you back. Huh? You're taking me back? I said, yes, I'm taking you back to your, you're not going to tell them. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to tell them. <laughs> so I phoned the dad and said, yes, you can bring her. So put her in there. But I was, at the same time, I was kind, saying, you know, it doesn't stop me from loving you. And I was doing all this in a kind way. But off we go. Because generally I'm a very soft auntie. So I said, no. And so I was very far. And so I brought her back. And the next time she came, she was so sweet. And she has never had a crisis of boredom <laughs> since. So in a way, sometimes we have to say No. You can't do this. It can't be that way. But then we can use it in a way which is stable, which is open, which is wise, which is compassionate. So, that's what I wanted to say tonight. Are there any questions or comments? Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. No, to me, the greatest example for me is in France. Uh, somebody who died recently, and who is my great hero, Labbé Pierre, and. What was interesting for me that I, I, since a young age, I, I, he's a great hero of mine. I never met him, ever met him. But once I went to this peace conference, just as a kind of a, one of the people who were just listening, and because it was organized because uh, the Dalai Lama was there, and so they had people from all religion and various places, and they were all talking about peace. So it was all very peaceful, you know, lots of peace. <laughs> da, da. And then suddenly... On the podium, you had this little guy. He was little and scrawny. Because he was, I mean, all through his life, he had been very ill, actually. And he came on the podium, and he said, I am angry. I thought, ah, interesting. You know, <laughs> makes a change. And what was he? He was angry at poverty. And through being angry at poverty, he was amazing. He became, a, although he was a, a priest, a monk, he became a, MP is the first person in the 50s who did something for the homeless. He created this huge movement for the homeless, Emmaus. And so in a way, the anger was, was used in a positive way. Because I think anger is energy. How can we use that energy? But if you use that anger in an aggressive way, you see if somebody tells you, you must be peaceful. I mean, in a way, you contradict the message. You know? So in a way, I think that L'Abbé Pierre, for me, is a very good example of what I would call creative anger. That he had the feeling, and then he did something which was creative. So the anger did not eat him. The anger did not overwhelm him. But he, he kind of canalized it in a very positive way. And at the same time, he did not use the anger to beat other people with. So I think, yes, anger, I think, can be a positive force. 
But I think it has to be aligned with this stability, with this openness, with this creativity. And then I think a lot of people through time have done great things with that anger, like Martin Luther King or Gandhi, etc. And I can, if it's used in a, in a creative, positive, stable way, I would say yes, of course. Yes? The resentment. I think Buddhists are great at resentment. <laughs> because, you know, they're Buddhists, so they don't get angry. But then they get resentful. Personally, I think, in a way, sometimes it's better to be angry than to be resentful. Because, you see, anger generally is not pleasant for ourselves and others. But when we are angry, at least we can experience it. And we can see, ah, this is what is going on. Resentment is very underneath. It's very interesting, resentment. So you kind of, you know, like resentment, you do something for somebody and they don't say thank you and they're cranky and all that. And what do you say? Hmm, well, they did not say thank you. Well, you know. And, and you actually, you don't, you don't really say to yourself why you are resentful. It kind of goes in really strange way. We have to be very careful with resentment. And so, to me again, what I would do is the same as with the other thing, is to look, what is the feeling? What, when, we are resent, resent, when we are resentful within our mind and we ruminate, then generally we feel something. It's not pleasant. It's kind of a little, but it's not very obvious. It's kind of a little, it's a little niggle. It's a little. So I think it's to become aware. How does it feel in the body? What is going on? What is the sensation? And then to look, what is it I am saying? What is it I am saying? What is the storyline? And, and very likely, actually the book of Ron Leifer is very interesting at that level because he said generally there is something about me about me who want to be appreciated in a certain way, or me who want to be given something in a certain way, or seen in a certain way. And it's a lot, resentment is a lot about wanting something and not getting it. And at the same time, thinking, well, I don't really want it, but at the same time, it would be nice to have it, would not it? So it's kind of all a little like that. And so in a way, to look at it, to kind of become more conscious, what is my rumination about? What am I? Not judging it, because that's not helpful. Not stopping it either. Just, what is this about? What is it I'm telling myself? And see, what, what is it about? What, what's the storyline here? What is it that is not being met? What is it I was hoping for? And just to be aware of it, generally, Take the sting out. It might not maybe make you more accepting, but I think the resentment will be much less intense. And to me, what I want us to be very careful with resentment is to try to catch it at the beginning, to try to notice. And that's what I recognize now. Because I used to be angry, and then I was much less angry. 
And then I started to see. <laughs> I was starting to be resentful. And then it would happen in a funny way. I would say to myself, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. Then it did not matter. Ten minutes later, mm, mm, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. You see, the more you do this, the more you're going to build up pressure. And then the person will do a minute thing. And then pff, you will say something. You know, not maybe explode in anger, but a little. And so now what I do is to really try to be aware at the beginning. If I say it doesn't matter, I say, wait a minute. Does it really not matter? And then to see maybe it matters. And maybe I have to talk about it now. But to try to, because then it's quite light. And then generally I can talk about it in a way I can communicate with the person. And we can see where the person is at, where I'm at, what is it that we're both expecting of each other. That, and then it's much easier. I have seen it's much better to really, and it, again, awareness, to try to see it at the beginning. And I must stop here. Thank you. <laughs>